Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast. Episode 18, it's all over. In this episode, I continue with the second half of my interview with Dee Dee Warren. So I'll skip any intro material and any promos, but do let me remind you where we left off. In episode 17, Dee Dee shared with us her testimony. She defined the term eschatology for us, describing for us what is probably the most popular view amongst Protestants in America, namely dispensational futurism. We quoted a number of unbelievers who were skeptical of Christianity because they insist that Jesus was a false prophet who predicted his second coming to happen within the lifetime of his contemporaries. We took a close look at Matthew 24:34, Matthew 16:27 to 28, and several passages in Revelation which seemed to support the skeptics' contention. But Didi explained why as preterists we agree with the skeptics that much of what most Christians think remains to be fulfilled in our future did, in fact, take place in that first century. And we explained why preterism is actually the more biblically consistent view of the end times since it interprets apocalyptic imagery in the way that it's used throughout the Old Testament. That's where we left off, so having taken a pit stop to refuel, let's get back onto the speedway. So, if we don't think that all eschatological prophecies were fulfilled in the first century, like these hyperpreterists you mentioned do, what do we affirm remains to be seen in our future? Well, the the main thing, the big thing, and I think today uh, we underestimate it in the Christian community is the resurrection. Mm. Um, that's that's really what we're you know what we're looking forward to. Um, the 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 second coming is tied up with the resurrection. That's mm. why Jesus comes back. He comes back to resurrect. Yeah. Um, so that's the, the, the biggie. It's the consummation of history. It's the complete and final undoing of what was lost in the fall. Yeah. And, 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 and so that, that's what we're looking forward to. Yes. Yeah. Well, among other things, but, but that would, I would agree with you. That would be the biggie. And, and, um, you know, tell our listeners about, um, what Paul had to say about one contemporary or two contemporaries of his, of his that, um, shared hyperpreterous understanding of the resurrection. Yeah, there were there were a couple of guys, Hymenaeus and Philetus. I don't know who would name their babies that. I just can't get, but um, Paul, Paul says um, about them um, to warning a church about them, saying that they teach that the resurrection is already past and overthrow the faith of some. And he describes them as a as a gangrene and a cancer. And I don't think that language has really changed. I really don't think those two terms have ever been complementary. Um, so he really like went after them in very strong terms. So this is, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon says. This heresy, you know, may, you know, I'm sure it had different, you know, um, you know, little, you know, differences here, differences there. But the main thing, the thing that, that Paul picked out to condemn, the saying that the resurrection has already passed, it's on that exact point that they have in common with today's hyperpreterists. It doesn't True. matter that some other things may be different. The point that Paul chose to pick out is the exact <laughs> point that is their big thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, 
is it is it just in the new in the new testament well is it just in the bible that the resurrection is spoken so uh, spoken of as being so important or or do we find it in the history of the church as well oh it always was a you know in the early church it was huge i mean this isn't a, d- a debate that or an issue that has just started to be studied. Um, it was one of the first things. There's a lot of writings on um, the futuristicity of the res- resurrection, the physicality of the resurrection, the necessity to believe that as part and parcel of the Christian faith. And though um, I think actually Glenn Peoples wrote on this on his blog recently where he doesn't agree with the strong wording of the Athanasian Creed, mm. At least shows, though, that how important it was that the physicalness of the resurrection was explicitly put into that creed in which it says you can't be a Christian if you don't believe this. Right. Now, you know, Glenn thought it, w- it went too far in some other areas, but that's just a historical example on and what I see in that, which is even more important, is the Athanasian Creed isn't an eschatological creed. It's a Christological creed. Mm. And reading that statement about the resurrection in there shows that the authors of that creed saw the nature and timing of the resurrection to be bundled with Christology. And I agree with them. I don't think the resurrection is an eschatological issue. It's a Christological issue, and that's why it makes it a salvational issue. And Paul even makes it with you know, Hymenaeus and Philetus, and even in First Corinthians 15, um, you had some people there saying, the dead can't rise. Yeah. You know, that's ridiculous, because that's, you know, the Greek thought then. You know, you know they didn't probably, didn't, they didn't have a problem with disembodied spirits or things like that, but people in the ground, no, they don't, they don't rise. And Paul showed them that if you don't believe that can happen, you're still dead in your sins, because right. Christ couldn't have risen, and our resurrection is going to be like his. Yeah. Well, so then as preterists, you and I affirm all the, uh, you know, eschatological or Christological fundamentals of the Christian faith, like the bodily return of Christ, the bodily resurrection of the dead, and then I'll throw in there as well the final judgment, the consummation of creation, um, and a physical existence for all eternity. But what does this say about those who claim that all of this has already been fulfilled? Do, 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 they, do they hold to a view which Christians should just be, should consider to be just one among many, uh, legitimate views in the Christian community? Yeah, that's what they're trying to do. Um, they and, and because of that is what's kept my involvement so um, where I, I've kept on this for like a decade now is they they consistently are trying to you know sneak their view in under the radar mm. almost and I compare it to the way you know there's been the whitewashing of Mormonism recently. Yeah. You know, at one time the Mormons were very clear that they thought everyone else was you know apostate jerks, but now <laughs> they're trying to be we're Christian just like you're Christian. You know, see, look, we got Jesus Christ in our church name. Right. And um, you know, hyper preterists though they never they they always have considered themselves to be Christians. I mean, they're really making a push for acceptance. But you don't think that they should be accepted as as Christians in that sense. No, because they deny a fundamental of the faith. Yeah. And the, the resurrection, I think Hank, Gra- Hank Hanegraaff used to say this, and I don't like the way Hank Hanegraaff, like, repeats the same things <laughs> like 10,000 times over, like, you know, Lilliputian world of enormous complexity. Right. But he says the resurrection is the archstone in the cap of Christianity. Like, he says that a gazillion times, but he's right. He is right. And, and he wrote a book called Resurrection where he really, you know, got into that. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Yeah. People don't get that. 
That's, you know, Jesus died and rose again to show that he was victorious over our sin. He was, you know, victorious over death and over everything that Adam lost. If we do not do the same, Adam's curse still prevails upon those who are Christ. It's completely ridiculous. You might as well just, you know, be a liberal Christian. I'm not talking about politics here, you know. Yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. I, no, it's all right. I, I I agree with you, and and you know, just as a side note, it, this is why I this is the the why I I did the very first episode I did of my podcast, which is that um it, it <laughs> this is a personal note, and I hope that none of my listeners are offended by this, but it drives me absolutely batty when people talk about their you know they can't wait to go to heaven, um you know Glenn people's view aside, you know physicalism. The fact of the matter is, as you pointed out, our hope is not in what we typically think of when we say, you know, going to heaven, it's in the resurrection and it saddens me. And I don't know if you, if you get this impression as well, but outside of, um, you know, thinking Christians, and I don't mean that in a, in a superior way, but just be, you know, people who are wrapped up in intellectually examining our faith. When you look at just the general Christian populace, it seems like people have forgotten about the resurrection entirely. Yeah. And they've forgotten, I mean, most of them are functional Unitarians as well. Yeah. They don't understand the Trinity. They don't worship the Trinity as Trinity. Um, so, yeah, I think you're, the word you maybe you were reaching for was more academic. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. You I, know, I didn't want to come across as... Cause you didn't, yeah, you didn't want to... It wasn't pejorative. It was... Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even in our, even in some worship songs that I like, you know, but you got, you know, I'll fly away, you know, yeah. that that's... You, it, it, you know, right. um, that, that isn't our hope at all. Our hope is the resurrection. Paul described, you know, and I don't agree with Glenn people's physicalism. And mm. now that I've studied more, I even less agree with his physicalism. Mm. But, um, Paul talked about the state of being unclothed from the body as something that's not desirable. Mm. You know, the being with the presence of Christ is desirable, but you're not a full human being. Yeah. Until you have your resurrected body. Right. Whether, whether, whether Glenn is right or not, if there is uh, a disembodied existence in heaven, it's subhuman. It's not what it's, it's not what we're meant to be. Right. And yeah. I, I think in some ways, um, and I'm sure the hyper preterists are going to jump all over me for this. I do not mean the same thing that the Adventists mean by it. But when people use terms such as soul sleep, mm. I think there's a nugget of truth there in that I, um, JP Holding has written about this as well, where he says, you know, in the disembodied state, it, it's somewhat of a, a murky existence. We're, we're not fully there mm. because we don't have our bodies. We're not, we're not complete. Yeah. So in that sense, he describes it as kind of dreamy, murky. And in that way, I kind of, the soul sleep people have taken it too far. But I can see where the little germ of truth spread into that error. Sure. Well, and, and you know, I don't want to, I haven't yet come down off the fence on that. Um, but, but what I will say is that if I were to view the parable of Lazarus and the rich man as being reflective of, the real state of things. And, you know, I'm sure that you're familiar with that parable. Um, what, what, what Jesus says is that, uh, Lazarus was, um, comforted in the bosom of Abraham. And it's interesting because that word comforted in the New Testament is always used, is, is always used in the sense of being comforted in the midst of one's suffering. Now, I'm not saying that, that if, if, uh, if we go to heaven when we die, we're in suffering. But what it does suggest is that there's something to be comforted about. You know, um, we are, like you said, it's dreamy or murky. It's not, um, it's not, where we're supposed to be it's it's something less than desirable as you said it's in you know a lot of people don't use this word anymore but i think it's a perfect one it's it's inchoate mm. um 
I don't. I have no idea. I don't what that means. Uh, well, look it up. It's and it's an awesome word. It really is. It's such a useful word that people don't use anymore. It's kind of still used in law, which is why I know it. Believe me, I'm not a walking dictionary or anything of the sort. I can hardly pronounce half the words I use. Yeah. But it's I N C H O. Oh yeah. Merriam-Webster defines it as being only partly in existence or operation, um, imperfectly formed or formulated. Yeah, I think that's a fair way to put it. It's an awesome word, and a lot of times it's used like in talking about pregnancies in in the in the fetus, Mm. and you know the way the organs are being formed and stuff that it's, you know, this system is inchoate and I just think that's awesome. Yeah. Anyway. That, that is a good word. And, you know, I, I know we've kind of, kind of got off on, on, on a, a tangent, but I, I do want to ask one more question about hyperpreterism. You mentioned that, or, or you didn't mention, but you've mentioned in, the, in your podcast, um, in, for example, your episode, Perfuming the Hog, that these people insist that they are the only true or consistent preterists willing at most to allow us to call ourselves partial preterists, um, since we only go so far as to say that many prophecies, but not all, um, you know, were fulfilled in the first century. And, and as you and I have pointed out, most Christians who have any familiarity, familiarity with preterism at all refer to these two views as full preterism and partial preterism. The question I have for you is, do you think that these are how Christians should refer to these views? Absolutely not. And it's important. Some people go, why are you just, you know, it's a war over words. It's semantics. No, it's not. Um, terminology has to have a ground point. So if the ground point is Christianity, then you have to look at how the review, how the, um, view relates to, um, Christianity. To say, um, that you believe the resurrection is future doesn't make you a partial preterist. It makes you a Christian because hmm. all Christians believe the resurrection is future. So you can't, you can't use that's, that's a starting assumption. Hmm. So we're preterist in relation to the things that Christians can disagree on. Right. Uh, so to say we're partial preterist as opposed to full, a full preterist, another word for that is a non-Christian. You're yeah. not a Christian. So there's no point in making it seem like we're partially something when we're fully Christian. Yeah. It's a very, very important thing to do. Um, and I, and I hate when even futurists do this where they say, well, we're all preterists to some point because, <laughs> you know, we believe that Jesus Christ already come. No, that just means you're Christian. Right. You know, it's, you can't be so equivocal with your terminology because it divests it of all meaning. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that it, it's not just as you've described it. Uh, it's not just for the reasons you've given that I think it's important. It's also because of um, what it does to the debate. And what I mean by that is so many people that are familiar with preterism and, and think of it in terms of full preterism and partial preterism will oftentimes not even give our view a fair shake simply by virtue of the fact that they uh, connect it with um, hyperpreterism. You know, and, and on the other hand, uh, you know, on the flip side of the coin, and I think it's even worse, um, hyperpreterist, uh, hyperpreterism, they do get a fair shake because they have co-opted uh, a word that has a historic, um, you know, good meaning. And so what you end up having is you have our view denigrated and not even considered because it's connected with hyperpreterism. And you have hyperpreterism given um, a, a level of legit- legitimacy it doesn't deserve because it's connected with what is historically a Christian word. And we don't do this with other points of view. We don't call, um, you know, Calvinists, partial Calvinists and full Calvinists. <laughs> yeah, Calvinists and hyper-Calvinists. Right. And I think the parallel's pretty good. Yeah. Um, the hyper-Calvinists take things way out of the ballpark, you know? Yeah. Well, so, okay, so... There are a couple more objections I want to bring up to our view, though. Let's let's move back out of hyperpreterism. I mentioned earlier that 
um, many object to preterism on the grounds that it spiritualizes away the prophecies we've been looked at, looking at. But another objection that I've seen made um, is that preterism leads to hyperpreterism. So, for example, uh, Thomas Ice in that book I mentioned earlier where he debates Kenneth Gentry, he wrote, it seems that many preterists are becoming hyperpreterists. Dr. Gentry's moderate preterism may satisfy him and others that they have a systematic answer to dispensational futurism, but it opens the door for too many to move into the heretical position of hyperpreterism. Once one partakes of the preterist approach, it seems hard to stop its growth and resist its appeal to preterize all Bible prophecy. And I've actually heard John MacArthur make similar claims. How would you respond to this charge that uh, uh, that preterism is like a gateway drug, you know, leading to the heresy of hyperpreterism? The the fact is that hyperpreterists are relatively few. Um, they're just very vocal mm. and very obsessed. Um, and and again, I would draw another parallel. Does Calvinism lead to hypercalvinism? Some hyper-Calvinists will say so, and they're really obsessive and loud, but very small group. Yeah. So there's a lot of people who hold the preterist view, and only a small amount um, apostatize. So, and I think you could probably find similarities in in any view you go to. I'm just not as educated in other things, but I'm sure you know you get somebody, you know some. I've heard people say that Trinitarianism leads to polytheism. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can do that with, with almost anything. There are going to be people who nut up and take it too far. Yeah. Um, and also, some people who are preterist haven't really developed a good defense for why they still think certain things are future. Hmm. A, a, a certain name comes to mind that you've talked about <laughs> a few times. Like Gary DeMar? Like Gary DeMar, right, exactly. Yeah, he really frustrates me. Yeah, well, um, I'll, I'll, point, I'll yeah. point my listeners to your podcast for that. Episode 8. Episode 8. Parts 1, 2, and 3, so, and I'm doing another one soon. Well, I look forward to that. Uh, Gary, Gary, Quite Contrary, is that what that series was? Yeah, yeah, How Does Your Garden Grow? Right. And there's something about Gary. <laughs> and there's something about Gary. I loved it. Um, well, yeah. here's another objection, though. Um yeah, I agree. I agree. We shouldn't we shouldn't dismiss claims just because of what the extreme that some people take them. I mean, that's obvious. Um, now, uh, both hyperpreterists and futurists will often object to our view that, on the basis that Jesus promised to come only once, uh, contrary to our claim that he came in a couple of different senses in the first century, uh, while at the same time looking forward to his second coming in our future. Um, how do you respond to hyper hyperpreterists and futurists who would insist that there can only be one sense in which Jesus would come again? Well, again, we can point to that passage in Revelation hmm. where he said he's going to come quickly and, you know, and show them what's for. If he doesn't come in certain ways, different ways, then there, I guess, you know, it's exhausted back then. Yeah. I mean, all Christians believe that Jesus comes in different ways. They all do. You have to. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I have an article. I was trying to pull it up while we were talking, but I have a bird on my shoulder right now. I don't want to have an eyeball pecked out. Sure. Um, <laughs> I have an article called Dumb and Dumber because I think that's one of the dumbest arguments. I really do. And I apologize to anyone who thinks it's good. Once you read the article, I think you'll do a face slap because really, <laughs> when somebody points out to you, it's just, it's really, really bad argument. Mm. Uh, and it is on my site and we can probably, you know, do, do a link to that. But the, the short summary of it is when you've got something that's in a sequence, you got the first coming and the second coming. They're like in kind. 
in that's why the the second coming we believe it's physical because the, the first coming was physical. I prefer to use the word advent because yeah. advent specifically means physical. Mm. While coming is equivocal, it can mean a lot of different things. Yeah. So we don't believe in many comings of Christ as in many advents of Christ. We believe in different kinds of comings, but they're different. War, you know, it's it's a totally different meaning. Yeah, Jesus on, promised he'd only come, he'd only be on earth physically twice. We believe that. Yeah. But he judges continuously. Yeah. His he said to um, the high priest um, that he you'd see the Son of Man, you know, sitting at the right hand of power, which is which is a position of judgment. Mm. And so he said it would judged, happen from now on. From now on, from this point forward. Yeah. You'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. And sitting at the right hand of at uh, right hand of glory or of the Father, depending on the translation, I love to ask futurists: How can he be sitting and coming at the same time? Is he <laughs> yeah. flying down in a chair? Right. You know, it, it, when they say he's going to come back in the same way he left, yes, we agree with that. But if you're going to literalize Revelation, it got you know he didn't rise riding a white horse. Mm. Is he going to be coming back? You know, on a horse? <laughs> There's all kinds of problems with that sort of thing, but. As far as physical advent, we only believe in two of those, just like all Christians do. Yeah. I all agree. Christians believe in many types of comings. It's just, it's dumb. It's just shallow. Yeah. And I, and I will also, I'll, I'll, I'll include a link to that in my show notes. I'll also include one that I wrote. It was actually my first contribution to, uh, the Preterist blog where I address a, um, Greek grammatical, um, claim that they make as far as there being only one coming, but we'll save that for another time. Um, but there is one more objection, really briefly, I want to look at before we start to begin to wrap this up. Um, and it's raised by a guy named Henry Alford back in 1872. I, 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 although I, I've seen this objection raised by other people as well. Um, but what he wrote was, The preterist view found no favor and was hardly so much as thought of in the time of primitive Christianity. This view is said to have been first promulgated in anything like completeness by the Jesuit Alcazar in 1614. Now, as you've often said, and, and this is something I agree with, Theological novelty isn't a good thing. So the question I have is, is preterism, relatively speaking, a theological novelty? Um, on, on that issue, systemized eschatology itself is, I wouldn't say a novelty, but it is something that has developed over time. Um, the early Christians were concerned with the basics, such as um, the resurrection, the fact that Christ is coming again, the fact that there'll be a final judgment, the fact that there will be an end of evil and a consummation of the world. That sort of thing is what preoccupied their their attention. There were wildly um, divergent views um, on the millennium. Um, a lot of the early church was premillennial, but not all of them. None of them had anything remotely close to dispensationalism. Hmm. If we're really going to... Uh, talk about theological novelty, you'd point more to dispensational futurism, which is the result of, you know, visions of that, I can't remember, was it Mary something, you know, back at the Plymouth Brethren. Mm. That's where, the, you know, the theory of the rapture came up. There's nothing of that at all. Now, preteristic strands and futuristic strands are found throughout church history. Mm. Um, but I think James White as, as said before too, he doesn't, he doesn't claim any of the early church fathers were a reformed Baptist. <laughs> you know, some of them held points of view that, that were compatible. Some of them were wrong in other areas, but there's a continuous line, you know, of development building upon the fund, on the foundation. Um, 
the father of church history, Eusebius, had made some very strong preteristic statements, and that's what Alcazar built upon. Mm. Um, Alcazar was the first systemizer of all the various strands. Um, the funny thing is Alfred, um, he, he's a, he bears forward some of these strands. Um, I, I think your your citation was from the New Testament for English readers, mm. which Henry Alfred's quoted from a lot. Um, it's I guess it's somewhat of an important book. I have it. I haven't read it cover to cover. Um, I refer to him several times in my commentary. Um, for instance, the phrase in Matthew 24, it says, he who endures to the end will be saved. A lot of people have a lot of problem with that in a preteristic context. But Henry Alford supports a preteristic interpretation of that. He said the primary meaning of this seems to be that whoever remained faithful till the destruction of Jerusalem should be preserved from it. Mm. No Christian that we know of perished in the siege after it. Those sorts of things have been said all along. Yeah. Alcazar may have systemized it. But putting something um, coherent together uh, isn't a theological novelty. Now, i got to be careful in how I say that because what the hyperpreterists do is they f- isolated statements that ripped out of the fabric of what the person who said the statement believed could look like their hyperpreterists. And they say, well, we're just taking these various comments. No, nah, no, <laughs> because... When we're taking a strand from somebody or we're not completely ripping it out of the context in which they believed it and would promulgate something that they would think, you know, absolutely denied the Christian faith. Right. You know, it, it's not cherry picking. You know, there's a difference. Um, Henry Alford also is very interested in, in Henry Alford supports the view. And this is even more controversial where we talked about the heavens and earth will pass away in mm. Matthew 24. Um, I'm going to quote from myself because paraphrasing it is just not going to work. So I'm, and I'm in my commentary talking about this. Okay. And I said, um, Old Covenant Israel was a quote-unquote heaven and earth that was done away with. But we also know that the entire creation of which earthly kingdoms are only microcosms will also be done away with and will be put in actuality under Christ. And I quote First Corinthians 15. I said, so yes, it happened. Yes, it is happening. And yes, it will happen. Also note that in the establishment of Zion, which the New Testament teaches us has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled and will be fulfilled in the church. Isaiah speaks of it as God planting the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth as a new creation. Many respected commentators make this type of application, such as Henry Alford. Hmm. So he he's he's. Saying something right, but putting a spin on it, that's mm. wrong. Or at the very least, the people that might cite him um, would are using what he's saying out of context to say that preterism is something brand new. When in yeah, fact- like he would have opposed all of, you know, and he wouldn't. There's a lot of very preterist-friendly comments from him. That's why he got the book. Yeah. And, and uh, just... And just in case anybody missed it, I think that what what you're saying, and I would agree with this, is that it's not just a systematic preterism that has developed over time. It's a systematic anything eschatological, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, even there's a, a a paper that is cited a lot, and I actually got a copy of it. And um, it's, it's called something to the effect of it. It was a thesis paper done at Dallas Theological Seminary written by a premillennialist called The Premillennialism of the Early Church Fathers. And he even demonstrates that the early church fathers had no systemized eschatology, even those that were premillennial 
contradicted themselves mm. constantly and confessed that they didn't understand how the two things came together. Yeah. And the reason that they contradicted themselves is they felt they had to be faithful to both passages and didn't yet know how to resolve it. Yeah. So on those types of issues, it, there, there was flux. Yeah. And I still think on some things there still is a little bit of flux, but not in the foundations, not on the very contours of salvation history. Yeah, I would agree. Well, that leads me, leads me to the final few questions that I've got for you. And it's no longer objections. I think that we've addressed all the major ones pretty easily, but there is something that is that is that I'll confess is kind of near and dear to my heart um which makes me sort of an enigma I think amongst preterism um and the question is this I I've I've known Christians and I've heard of others who think that preterists tend to have a very low opinion of the Jewish people and the nation of Israel but I've heard you make a very compelling case in your podcast and in your in your appearances on other programs that it is actually a dispensational understanding of eschatology which have consistently followed casts the modern people of Israel in a negative light whereas preterism does not can you explain that well if you're like I said earlier if you take the race um, interpretation, your interpretation will then make Jews of all times still being punished for and being guilty of the sins of the first century. But also, um, in a dispensationalist view, what Hitler did is nothing compared to what's going to happen in mm. Israel. And they're looking, not necessarily looking forward to a bunch of Jews dying, but they're looking forward to that as part of the second coming. Mm. And they're paying to have, because they think that, you know, a lot of Jewish people have to be in Israel. They, they got that ministry on Wings of Eagles that pays, you know, to send like maybe Jews from Russia into Israel. Why? Why would you do that? Why would you send somebody to some place that you think where two thirds of them are going to die? Yeah, it'd be it'd be like sending right before you know Hitler came to power, sending a bunch of Jewish people to Germany. Why would you do that? Right. It's it's just it's crazy. I don't I don't view a future and look forward to a future in which two thirds of Jewish people living in Israel are going to die. Yeah. You know I. Just don't, you know. I mean, if the Bible really said it, I, I would believe it. Wouldn't be too happy about it, <laughs> right? But you know, and then people say, "Well, you know, you don't think there's any glorious future for the Jewish people?" That's wrong because I'm a post millennialist, and I think the gospel is going to be victorious. The thing is that I don't only think there's going to be a glorious future for Jewish people, but also for Italians and Indians and you know Eskimos. Mm. So, well, that, that... It, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, that's good. You go. No, that's right. Well, so that that leads me to my next question. Um, and and you know, whatever your answer to this is, okay. Um, you know, I'll elaborate after you answer. But, um, you know, many futurists, particularly dispensationalists, see the Jewish people and the nation of Israel as being the focus of end times prophecy, as being the specific subject of prophecies yet to be fulfilled. And and you know, we agree that Israel was the focus of much of end times prophecy, but that it was that first century generation of unbelieving Jews who were being judged, and not some Jews, some two thousand years removed but what does this mean for the people and nation of israel today is besides just being part of the glorious the glorious success of the church uh in your post millennials view which i don't share but that's okay <laughs> uh what what does this mean for them is there any place for israel specifically uh apart from the gentile church in biblical prophecy yet to be fulfilled in your view um here short answer no Okay. But I want to correct some terminology. I don't call us a Gentile church. I think we were grafted into the olive tree of Israel. And when God um, in the New Testament refers to the Israel of God, I think that's the church. So um, 
we've been grafted in. Um, I don't, as I said, I don't believe Judaism has existed since the first century. Christianity, you know, we're just talking terminologies. That's the continuation of the Old Testament faith. We mm. just call it Christianity now. But if you want to be, if I want to be more specific, we believe in a Jewish Messiah that brought in the Jewish age. You know, we believe in a Jewish faith. Mm. We don't call it that. It we might seem awkward now, but that is the implications of the New Testament. Yes. You know, the new covenant was only promised to be, be given to the house of Judah and the house of Israel. If you're not a member of the house of Judah and the house of Israel, you have no promise of the new, new covenant. And that's another thing that dispensationalists like don't get a grip on. Sure. Yeah, I would agree. Um, but, but so what you're saying though is that as far as, um, Israel, as a nation or as an ethnic people group, um, there's nothing uh, specifically yet to be fulfilled for them apart from um, the church. Is that what well, let me tell you where there's one thing where I'd say maybe and what because now you're wording it a little bit differently. Fair enough. The nation of Israel, like the physical country over in the Middle East, they're antichrist. They deny Christ. They prevent people from um, spread, you know, giving the gospel. Um, they're completely secular. Um, it, it's not, you know, there, it's nothing that would be pleasing to God. Mm. So I don't think there's a future for the nation of Israel in that way. When it comes down to individual ethnic Jews, as I said, I, there's a difference between being ethnically Jewish and being religiously Jewish. I, yes. I don't think religious Jews exist anymore Agreed. unless they're Christians. Right. Um, but maybe I'm not sure there might be God. God you, you know, he set aside Israel in the Old Testament for a reason. There are some verses that seem to think that that make me think, in, especially if Calvinism true, and he elects people based upon his own good pleasure, perhaps there is a massive election of ethnic Jewish people to come in the future. I don't know. It okay. could be. But not focus on the actual nation of Israel over there. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate you leaving open that window because I will, you know, I think most preterists agree with you. Um but, you know, there's a certain extent to which I don't agree with you, and that's okay. Um, I do think there's a specific place in, in prophecy for Israel, but, um, you know, the question I just wanted to find out was if you thought that there was anything in a systematic preterism that demands that there are no prophecies whatsoever that are remain, that remain to be fulfilled specifically by Israel's future. And I mean, might there be room within a preteristic eschatology for a specific role for Israel? You know, it depends on, again, how I answered your question two different ways, depending upon how it was worded. So it depends on how you define Israel. True. You know, as a geopolitical nation, no. Well, I don't think, you know, I, well, again, I hate to say that. I don't think so. Maybe other people, you know, they see things a little bit differently. I'm not the end all and be all final word on what's consistent with preterism. I don't think so. Okay. Um, but you, you, I, you you disagree. You're wrong. <laughs> you're wrong windows, so you know we can't all be perfect. Oh, yeah, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> I, I operate a Windows machine. Um, well, that, okay, that's that's good. I mean, um, the reason I was asking is because there are um, many Christians, and I'm thinking primarily of Jewish Christians, including friends of mine and, and friends of their friends, um, who, who might reject preterism out of hand because they've been told that there's no room for Israel in prophecy uh, as a nation and, and as an ethnic people. Um, now. I think that we would agree that what one presupposes or desires as far as Israel is concerned is not a valid reason to reject our view. You know, so I, I agree with that. But I just wanted my listeners to know that preterism isn't uh, monolithic on this point. Even if most preterists would share your understanding, I, I will just say for my listeners, I do think that there's room. Maybe I'll talk about it with you in email, you know, in the future, uh, for 
Israel as a people group and as a nation, um, as catalogically speaking. But the point just being that systematically, preterism doesn't require that there be no such, um, at least in my opinion, uh, fulfillment on the part of specifically Israel. Again, depending on how you define it, um, Kenneth Gentry would say that he, he has a tape series of prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled, and he talks about mass conversion of the Jewish people. Um, but not as it not the nation of Israel, not as a geopolitical nation, but as ethnic people group. Okay, no, so I, it I, might not all be in one place, you know, scattered across the the world. But the way they'll be converted is to come into the church. They're not going to be converted in this dispensational way of where they're going to have a temple again. Yes. And stuff like that. I'm glad, I'm glad you, 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 you clarified because, um, so it sounds like you would be open to the possibility that, that ethnic, ethnically Jewish people, um, like you said, could experience a mass conversion. Um, and you said it might not be centralized, but, but could it be centralized within the nation of Israel, even though the nation of Israel may not have anything to do with it? Well, there might be just because there's a lot of ethnically Jewish people there. Right. Yeah. But actually, I think there's more ethnically Jewish people in the city of New York than is in all of Israel. I read that somewhere as a statistic. So, I mean, if there's going to be a mass conversion of Jews, it's going to be where Jewish people are. It's going to be a lot. Yeah. So, yeah, there would be a lot in Israel, and maybe then they would reform the nation. Fair enough. And make it not so secular and don't outlaw the spreading of the gospel. Um, but I also believe there's going to be a mass conversion of all people groups. Yes. But Kenneth Gentry believes that the New Testament um, specifically, not only talks about the conversion of other people groups singles out israel as well israel meaning ethnically yeah. jewish people well like i said i'm very glad you brought that up because that's exactly what i feel as well so i'm glad to know that i'm not uh i'm not just open to that i think that's exactly what the new testament teaches and i'm glad to know that as a preterist i'm not alone <laughs> no uh, I, I think a lot of you know i i think what happens is we're you you hear a term and somebody's using it a different way that term israel is so equivocal that yeah i think you have to go through a lot of definitions on exactly what you mean i would agree and actually i'm doing a series i have i've got one in on my podcast with a friend of mine where we're tackling just those kind of issues but anyway that's that's the topic of another discussion so let, let, let's bring this let's wrap this up then um I know that many Christians, and, and I know of many, I know many Christians, and I know many others, who for a variety of reasons don't think that this, this study of eschatology is, is, is it important. Um, I'm sure that you've heard this, this phrase, which makes me sick, but apparently. Uh, pan-millennial? Yeah, exactly. Or pan-tribulational or whatever. Right, exactly. Uh, try, try to swallow that throw up back. But, you know, as, uh, you know, as preterists, we're not, we're not pan-tribulational at all, um, or, or pre-trib, or mid-trib or post-trib. But, but I think that that line, that, that phrase is reflective of an attitude shared by many Christians, one which dismisses as a serious study of what the Bible has to say about the future as being unimportant. If, if you think that it's an important question worth examining, why? Why should Christians invest time and energy in studying eschatology? Uh, many reasons. Because eschatology is bound up with Christology, and Christology is certainly worthy of study. Eschatology um, teaches us what Christ came to do and fulfill. I mean, what can be more important than that? Mm. And I think it's been estimated, again, I'm quoting somebody, I haven't done the statistics myself, that 30% of the Bible is prophecy. Yeah. I don't think you could dismiss that large of a chunk. It's it's not a minor issue. It's bound up in all other doctrines. Mm. A little earlier when we were talking about the Jewish people, and then I brought in the fact that, you know, now I'm holding to a Calvinistic belief and how that fit in. Yeah. 
and you know in what what Christ actually came to do you the 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 nature of his victory it's not at all an issue yeah and would, Christ spoke about it quite a bit. I mean, there's a whole that whole chapter, you know. <laughs> that's right. That's right. An entire chapter. <laughs> yeah. You can't you can't dismiss it. Now you could admit, you know, well, maybe that's not your your area of interest. Um, you're having difficulty understanding God's place else. But I don't think you can be so cavalier as many Christians are about it. I would agree, and I would just point to the. Um, the turmoil that you went through, for example, as evidence that if we aren't at least on a fundamental level grounded in eschatology, um, we're leaving ourselves very open to being led astray by not just hyperpederists, but potentially other groups as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, eschatology or eschatological issues are part of almost every ecumenical creed. Mm-hmm. Um, the Apostles' Creed mentions eschatology, and that's one that, you know, that's all churches agree with that. Even the Roman Catholic Church will hold to the Apostles' Creed. Of course, we would have a little bit of a different interpretation of one section of it, but the rest of it, you know, it, it talks about eschatology as being an essential of the faith. Yeah, that's right. Well, okay, so here, let, let me leave my listeners with, with what I hope they take away from this. Um, bringing this full, full circle back to the issue of skepticism, I think they've got a legitimate beef. Um, Jesus and his apostles did very clearly, I think, say that much of what Christians think remains to be seen in our future was to take place within the lifetimes of their contemporaries. Um, our, our interpretation, a preteristic interpretation of end times prophecy, not only serves as powerful proof that Jesus was a genuine prophet of unparalleled accuracy, but, but that, and, and thus that the skeptics are wrong, but it also understands prophecy in what I think is a much more biblically, biblically consistent way, uh, and in its correct cultural context. Um, and then, of course, I don't think that preterists are forced to become heretics. We can be consistent and yet legitimately affirm the end times essentials of the Christian faith. Now, we could talk about this for hours and hours, um, but what would you like to leave my um, listeners with? Is there something that you'd like them to take away from all this? Yeah, buy a Mac. <laughs> yeah, but there you go. You know I had to. I know. Um, I... What I would leave them with is not to be cavalier um, and to find some place in their study, if they're serious about studying the Bible, um, for eschatology and to realize that the popular view isn't the only view. And it's not even historically a majority view. Mm. Um, and also... With the views maybe you disagree with, you you have studied it and you disagree with, to at least understand what other people are saying. Yeah. You know, a lot of people just automatically, you know, will just d- dismiss the preterist view before ever really un- taking the time to understand why we think what we think. Most people are not so stupid that they walk into Wall's face first. <laughs> usually if they believe something that seems to us on the face ridiculous, it's usually us who have the problem and not them because generally normal people have a reason for believing something it's not just this sheer you know crazy ridiculous thing right. i mean even even though they're wrong and we can prove them wrong jehovah's witnesses have a reason why they believe the way they believe they have certain verses they point to and we have to be able to deal with them and not be set up straw and we have to understand where they're coming from and i i the way futurists um interact with preterists a lot of the time, especially on forums like Theology, I think it's just shameful. Mm. They they refuse to understand um, 
where the preterist is coming from to accurately represent them. And it seems like some futurists would rather commit Harry Carey than admit a preterist has a point, you know? <laughs> yeah. Even if you say like me, okay, in isolation, I can see that, but this is why I don't agree. I find that actually in all issues in Christians, or some people are so entrenched that to actually admit that someone else has made a good point, you know, they, yeah, they, they would rather commit ritual suicide. Yeah. Yep, I, I agree. Glenn, Glenn expressed a similar sentiment after our interview as well, um, and, I, and I, I agree. Well, now this has gone on, I think, a lot longer than I had anticipated, but, you know, we, what we tried to do, what I tried to do was give sort of an introductory primer uh, to preterism to my listeners. If they want to learn more, um, what resources can you recommend as far as books and websites, whatever? What, what resources can you recommend? Well, I hate to plug my own site, but it's not all my own work. It might be my site, <laughs> mm. but very little on the Preterist site. I'm not talking about the Preterist blog. Talking the Preterist site is an index of all kinds of good works, and some of them are free and online, you know, clickable links. Others will be lists of books that you can get, and a lot of them are used on Amazon for for inexpensive. Um, so I would really refer somebody over to the Preterist site to take a look through the indexes and. Because it's free and because I've done a lot of research and you can look in the end notes to see where I got stuff from, I would point people to my commentary on Matthew 24. I'm sure it's got its faults, but it will give you a good background on where the view's coming from. And then you'll see what scholars I was relying upon. And then you could go to those particular works. And, you know, particularly because it's online and free, I think it's a, it's a good place to start some of those online free articles. And where can they find the Preterist site and the Preterist blog and, and the Preterist podcast, for that matter? Um, well, the Preterist site, I mean, I kind of like went for a um, a theme. Yeah. So we've got uh, com, PreteristBlog.com, PreteristPodcast.com. There you go. So it's it's – and I even have <laughs> – I've got Preterist email at <laughs> gmail.com. Nice. Yeah. Um so yeah, that's where you that's where you'd go to either of those three sites. So the Preterist blog is also good if you want it, but it's more contemporary issues. It kind of presupposes you have a good working background knowledge of what's going on. Sure, and and I, I also because I contribute to that blog, will point my listeners there <laughs> as, as a good place to go. Um, uh, okay, well that's been this has been really good. I, I really appreciate the time that you've taken with me. Um, just thanks you thanks so much, Dee Dee. Hey, no problem at all. If you're listening and are new to preterism, or actually, I guess even if you're already very familiar with preterism, you've no doubt got a bunch of questions, and that's totally okay. I intended this only as an introduction to preterism, and I think the interview served that end well. I'll talk about preterism in greater depth in future episodes, so please do send me your feedback, your questions, and I'll try and address those in one of those future episodes. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode of the Theapologetics Podcast. Until then...